One of the policies that was debated during this convention was universal basic income, and a resolution calling for the establishment of one was universally endorsed. It's a pretty simple concept. The government provides just enough cash to people so that their basic needs can be met, regardless of work status. And despite being viewed by critics as a too costly utopian pipe dream, basic income is now being looked at as a way to address the social inequities and welfare gaps that the pandemic exposed. We have a choice to make. We can decide to move forward instead of returning to the status quo. We can choose to embrace bold new solutions to the challenges we face and refuse to be held back by old ways of thinking. What we really need to do is to make sure that our students graduate with that ability to put themselves into somebody else's shoes and imagine the world from their perspective. To recognize, even if you're a 21-year-old who thinks they're going to take over the world, to recognize that we're all vulnerable to things happening in our lives, that the possibility of us needing support from society and possibility of everybody needing the support of one another as they move ahead is something that's really important. And I think a basic income is a reasonable way to do that. Welcome to another episode of What's the Big Idea with University of Manitoba President Michael Benarosh in conversation with some of today's big thinkers. Together, they'll unpack the big idea their work explores with topics ranging from astrophysics to social justice. These diverse voices tell us how the UM community is contributing to the cultural, social, and economic well-being of the people of Manitoba, Canada, and the world. In today's episode, Michael sits down with Evelyn Forget, economist, academic director of the Manitoba Research Data Centre, and a professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences. Together, they'll discuss Evelyn's groundbreaking research on the effects of guaranteed income on improving health and reducing poverty. As one of the first economists to study guaranteed income in a systematic way, Evelyn's work has shed light on the potential benefits of this innovative policy idea. Michael and Evelyn will dive into some of her most fascinating findings, including the ways in which guaranteed income is not only affordable right now, but an effective and just way of addressing poverty. Hello, Evelyn. Thanks so much for sitting down with me today. You're one of the world's foremost authorities on guaranteed basic income or MINCOM. And as an economist myself, I'm really excited to speak with you about this idea that offers a solution to so many of our economic and um, in many ways health challenges. So let me begin by asking you a question that I've been asking all of our guests on this podcast and the central question is, what's your big idea? I think a basic income guarantee is an affordable, effective, and just way to address poverty. If we didn't spend a penny more, if we just took the money we're currently spending in this country trying to get money into the hands of people with low incomes, and we spent that same money smarter, we could cut the poverty rate by 50%. So I think it's long past time that we move towards a guaranteed basic income. You know, what you just said was really interesting. We wouldn't have to spend more money. It's just spending it smarter. Well, if we spent more money, we'd get better outcomes. Right. But even spending what we currently spend, we can make great progress. So just a couple of definitions. What is a guaranteed basic income? A guaranteed basic income is a transfer of money from the government 
to people with low incomes that allows them to meet their basic needs and to participate fully in society. So it's not a replacement for all of the social programs we have in place. We still need things like public health care, public education, supports for people with disabilities. But it does replace other kinds of cash transfers, things like income assistance at the provincial level, for example. So what is not a guaranteed basic income? Well, I think what makes it different from the programs we currently have in place is that it tends to be unconditional. And by unconditional, I don't mean that it doesn't depend on your income. It does depend on how much income you make. As your earned income increases, the size of your benefit would decline. But it's unconditional in the sense that you don't have to demonstrate that you deserve the money. You don't have to behave in particular ways. If you choose to use your time by going back to school, for example, you can do that without permission. You don't have to demonstrate that you're actively seeking jobs or accepting opportunities that come your way. You're free to make your own decisions about how to spend your money and how to use your time. That's getting into the idea of how it's best used, right? It's not to have a whole bunch of rules around it to make it really, in in some sense, really simple. It's also a little bit about trust. It's about recognizing that individuals, that families are best judges of what it is they need. They don't really need experts to tell them how to spend their money and how to make their lives better. Right. So they don't need to be told if you spend money on sending your kids to a sport event, you can get a tax credit. It's really, here's your money, you spend it in the way that's best for you and your family. And like everybody else, people make mistakes. People don't necessarily spend the money in ways that you might like them to spend the money, but people do take responsibility for their own lives. And they do generally make good decisions about how to do that. And you've argued that as a society, this is something that we need that will be really beneficial. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your thinking around this? I was first attracted to the idea of basic income guarantee from the health perspective. I actually work in a faculty of medicine. My office is at the Health Sciences Center. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to recognize that we're treating the consequences of poverty in our healthcare system. And you're an economist. I'm an economist. We know that's not the most efficient way to address poverty. So many years ago, I went looking for the results of an old experiment that took place in Manitoba during the 1970s. And I was able to show that people who received a basic income were hospitalized 8.5% less frequently than similar people who didn't receive that income. So I think it improves people's health, but that was what initially attracted me to basic income. I've also started to look at a lot of other social programs Senator Kim Pate, who is a proponent of basic income, has introduced a bill in the Senate supporting the idea of a basic income guarantee, likes to remind us that 80% of the women who are incarcerated are there for poverty-related crimes. It's expensive to keep people in prison. How much of our special education budget is going to support kids who fall behind because their parents can't afford to pay the rent and kids change from school to school to school? and fall behind. It's hard to think of any social program we have in Canada, any social problem that's not made worse by poverty. But the easiest way to answer that question, I think, is to answer it in a very sort of cold-hearted economic way. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this at all, but we've got hundreds of programs in this country designed to get money into the hands of people with low incomes. Some of those programs are offered by the federal government in the form of allowances or deductions or refundable or non-refundable tax credits, things like the GST credit, for example. 
Some of them are offered by the provinces, income assistance. EIA in Manitoba has at least six different programs in it. It includes things like rent assist, also refundable and non-refundable tax credits at the provincial level. Some of them are offered by municipalities. As you go across the country, a lot of municipalities offer reduced price transit passes, for example, or housing subsidies for people. All of these programs for the most part, are badly designed. They're all incredibly complicated. Every one of them has different eligibility requirements, different application procedures, different ways of accessing the programs. When I say they're badly designed, by that I mean they conflict with one another. So participating in one program makes you ineligible for another one, or it requires you to pay back benefits you might receive from a third program. Or it punishes people, for example, for trying to get a part-time job and making a few dollars to improve their lives. It takes away more benefits than they receive from working. But what these programs do, essentially, is they say to people at the very worst times in their lives, because most people are applying for money, because something terrible has happened to them and to their families. So at the worst time in their lives, we say, okay, sit down at this machine and work your way through this incredibly complex bureaucracy at three different levels of government and figure out what programs you might be eligible for. Apply for them and see if you can get some support for your family. And as you can imagine, most people never get all of the support they're actually entitled to receive. So what does the basic income do? Basic income says, can't we clean this mess up a little bit? Can't we simplify this system, make money available to people, and make sure it gets into their hands in a reasonable way? A lot of the evidence does show that many people don't even apply for many of the benefits that they have available across the world. It's not just in Canada. It's everywhere. People don't know what benefits are available to them. If they do know, they don't necessarily know how to apply or the application procedure requires so much in the way of literacy and computer literacy that they can't access the benefits in a timely and reasonable way. And so we introduce other layers of bureaucracy to help people access the benefits to which they're entitled. We can make it easier. So what's the criticism that this idea has faced and, and you know, how, how do we address these concerns? I think that basic income advocates like to remind us that there's support for basic income right across the political spectrum. If you go back to the 1970s when people were talking about what at the time was called guaranteed annual income, it had support from everybody from Milton Friedman to Martin Luther King, just right across the spectrum. There's also criticism right across the spectrum. And it's interesting how it falls out. Everybody's worried about cost. People on the right of the political spectrum are worried about work incentives. There's a concern that if you give people money for nothing, if you don't make them show up with the 30 places that they've submitted uh, resumes this month, they're not going to work and it'll become more expensive to support them. They'll become dependent. The argument on the left is a little bit harder to address because it's wrapped up in a language of caring and support, but it's it's really the worst kind of paternalism. I think on the left of the political spectrum, a lot of the criticism comes in the form of not trusting people to make their own decisions, not believing that people can make good decisions for their families. So how do I combat it? There have been lots of studies done on the costing of these programs, three of them by the Parliamentary Budget Office in Canada, all of which have demonstrated that the choice not to have a basic income is a decision. It's something that we can certainly afford in this country. It can be done. 
The work incentives issue has certainly been overstated, and there's lots and lots of evidence from statistical analyses of similar kinds of programs that show that there's not a huge reduction in work effort if you introduce programs. Just looking at some of the analysis that's been done on the Canada Child Benefit, for example, when the Canada Child Benefit was expanded in 2016, more mothers worked, not fewer, and they worked for more hours. So there's no real reason to believe that people aren't going to work. People, for the most part, will continue to work. When I went back and looked at the income results from the 1970s, the project that took place in Winnipeg and in Dauphin, Manitoba, there were really two categories of people who did work less. The first were new mothers. And if you think back to your sort of economic history of the 1970s, maternity leaves at the time were about four weeks. And so a lot of new mothers thought that this was rather a miserly approach to supporting new parents, and they used some of them income to buy themselves longer maternity leaves, which is, of course, something we've introduced across the board because we know what's better for families, for infants, for mothers to have more time with their newborns. The other group, and here language becomes really, really important. The language at the time was young, unattached males work dramatically less. And young, unattached males, of course, are young males who aren't yet married, who don't have families. And it sort of fed everybody's biases, I think, about what would happen, all of these young men running away from their responsibilities. I was able to track down some of the people who participated in the project at the time, and from all of them, I heard the same story. And that is that if you were growing up in a low-income family, you were under a fair amount of family pressure, especially if you were a boy, to become financially independent as soon as you could. So typically these boys would turn 16, they'd quit school, and they'd get a job. And there were jobs available for them. What happened when income came along is a lot of families thought that these boys could maybe stay in high school a couple of years longer. And so when you look at the data, what you find is a huge reduction in the number of hours worked by young, unattached males. And if you change that language a little bit, what you're talking about are 15 to 19-year-old boys. So 15 to 19-year-old boys are working a whole lot less because instead of going out and getting a full-time job at the age of 16, they're in grade 11 and they're learning a little bit of math and graduating from high school. So I think it's a decision about what it is you want to support. If you think about that over the next 40 years, the boys who left school at age 16 without complete high school in the mid-1970s have undoubtedly spent a lot of time in the subsequent 40 years out of work or looking for new jobs, earning lower salaries. The boys who graduated from high school, I've met many of them in Ottawa, for example, or in other parts of the country who told me that they were in fact part of this experiment, that they were the first person in their family who'd ever graduated from high school. That's a great example. And again, I can't help but being an economist. So thinking about a cost up front, but if you finish high school or you go on to higher education as opposed to dropping out in grade 10, your income stream in your life and the amount of taxes you would pay in Absolutely. your life would be much higher, thus making the lifetime cost of that program much lower. And even beyond that, because you can think about the opportunities you can offer your own children, you know, if you have a decent income. So yeah, it's pretty profound. And we can do the same thing if we stand back and look at the costs of the entire program of basic income. It has costs up front, no question about it. If you're giving more people more money, it's going to cost more. On the other hand, the upfront costs of paying for that are going to are going to give you a return on that investment downstream when you're not expanding your healthcare system to deal with the consequences of chronic illnesses that have people hospitalized who ought not to be hospitalized for example or dealing with poverty in your prison system or in in the foster care system. 
because caseworkers can't necessarily tell the difference between poverty and neglect. Well, one of the things I found interesting was that, you know, just a four-year project still had significant impacts on education. I mean, you, you know, you would think that those might take a longer period of time to see that impact at a societal level. And I realize it was in particular communities, but it had a very rapid impact. It did. And my focus has been on particular groups because, of course, if you receive money at a time in your life when you're particularly vulnerable, and 16-year-olds are particularly vulnerable, if the families receive money at a time when they can support their kids in high school, that makes a difference. That makes a huge difference. And in terms of the hospital outcomes, um, I can I can cite all kinds of data here. I mean, you know, if Kaihai, the Canadian Institute for Health Information, did a study of what they call ambulatory care-sensitive conditions. These are hospitalizations that occur that ought not to occur. If you received adequate primary care, you wouldn't be hospitalized. And found that 40% of them, 40% of those hospitalizations were associated with socioeconomic status. If you could improve the health of people in the lowest 20% of income earners, the lowest income quintile, and just improve it to the health of the people in the second lowest quintile, you'd save 50% of the costs associated with public health. So, I mean, there's a huge suggestion that uh, there are benefits downstream to investing upstream. You know, taking some of the money that we're currently spending, mopping up the consequences of poverty, and giving it to families so they can avoid poverty and make good decisions in the first place. Fascinating. I was thinking also about the work incentive criticism, and I was thinking about the work of uh, David Carr and Alan Kruger on uh, raising minimum wages in in New Jersey by 20%. And the idea would be that this would be catastrophic because jobs would be lost. Yeah. They, They discredited all of that. It, in fact, didn't happen. In fact, had the opposite effects, right? Exactly. There's, so. there's some there's some similarities between the arguments in, in these two cases. Exactly. So in the Finnish basic income experiment that took place a couple of years ago, one of the things that people were finding, it was a two-year experiment, and it was focused on people with multiple barriers to working. So these are people who've been unemployed for a very long time, who have low levels of education for the most part, some literacy challenges. Towards the end of the two-year period, people were more likely to be moving into permanent-style jobs than if they hadn't received the basic income. So comparing them to a control group, they were much more likely to become fully employed as opposed to the other group worked more hours, but they worked more hours at temporary jobs, part-time jobs. So I think there is a little bit of evidence emerging from some of these experiments and, and from our own experience of other similar kinds of programs that tells us that people can make good decisions if they have a little bit of stability and constancy in their lives, because that's what really what we're talking about here. We're talking about an income security. If you're spending all your time trying to make sure that your your kids have food, you know, aren't going to bed hungry at night or scrambling to pay the rent every single month, then you're not thinking three and four months ahead or two years ahead or five years ahead. You're not making those long-term decisions just because you're trying to keep everybody alive and comfortable for the time being. And I think that's what a basic income does. You started your research on income about 15 years ago, maybe longer. And since then, you've been in the New Yorker, (laughs) New York Times, Freakonomics, Motherboard. And I'm curious how over the period of time when you first started to research this, 
how the dialogue has changed. I started working on this in about 2007, and I was working on it largely, largely because I grew frustrated because you know that when you're a health economist, people always ask you the same question, and that is, how are we going to pay for this? And I was frustrated because when you're walking through the hallways of the Health Sciences Center, you're talking to patients, you're in the weight rooms, you know what you're dealing with. You know that you're dealing with the consequences of poverty. And we know that health outcomes and income are linked. We've known that for many, many years, but we didn't have really good data about ways to address poverty and whether it had an impact on health outcomes. And I remembered this old MINCOM project that took place in Manitoba. It was announced in 1974, finally wrapped up in 78. The money stopped flowing in 1978. And I knew about this project forever because it was actually taking place at a time when I was an undergraduate student in Toronto. And I knew about the project as an undergraduate because my professor would show up in class and talk about this great project that was taking place. And <laughs> it was going to revolutionize the way we delivered social programs. So I was interested in it. But I went on to graduate school and I found myself a job here in Winnipeg. I came to Winnipeg and ended up in Health Sciences Center and remembered the old project. So I went looking for the data and started doing this analysis. And then in about 2009, something really interesting happened across the world. We had the Great Recession during that period. And suddenly there was this efflorescence of interest in basic income that hadn't occurred for, for a long time. And people were talking about basic income, and they were talking about it in the context of the changing labor market. There would be a lot more mechanization. We might be entering some kind of a, a permanent slowdown. The nature of jobs was changing. Computerization was changing. Maybe basic income was a way to deal with it. So in about 2009, 2010, 2011, people were very, very focused on the labor market responses of a basic income. And that persisted for a number of years. My interest has never been in the labor market per se, but instead in, in terms of health and social outcomes. And then along came COVID. And COVID was really interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it forced many of us to recognize how badly so many of our existing programs worked. Even the federal government recognized that if we stayed with the programs we have, the employment insurance system would be completely overwhelmed. It couldn't have functioned. And that was true of so many of our programs. They just simply weren't working. But a lot of people who never thought about it very much were forced to recognize that during that period. So we recognized how badly our existing programs were doing. The other thing we learned very quickly is that when there's a political will, the federal government can move very quickly. And so they, they created the CERB, for example, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, and introduced it in, I think, a period of a few weeks in order to take the pressure off the employment insurance system. And the CERB was not a basic income. It was a very highly conditional program. So it was only available to people who'd earned $5,000 in the previous year and who were off work because of COVID. And there were a lot of restrictions on it. Nevertheless, a lot of people got a little bit of money under that program. And the data is just being released by Statistics Canada, and it actually cut the poverty rate in half during that period. So a little bit of money managed to cut the poverty rate really dramatically. So again, basic income is sort of on everybody's mind, partly because people are confused about what a basic income is, and is there a basic income? Is it not a basic income? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? 
Well, and with COVID, and that was at a time of really high unemployment, all of the service jobs that were lost during that time. And of course, that wouldn't be the situation now is, you know, in fact, unemployment is quite low. So if, you, you know, because I think one of the criticisms was, you know, we can't maintain that kind of cost. Well, over no, a long and we wouldn't have to. <laughs> That's right. I mean, the other way of looking at it is to ask yourself what would have happened if we already had a basic income guarantee program in place when COVID came along. That program would have automatically expanded to address the needs of people during COVID when the pandemic was underway. When the economy began to recover, it would automatically shrink. It becomes an automatic stabilizer in the old fashioned Keynesian sense of operating without any government intervention at all. You've got a program in place, it automatically responds to needs. So a pandemic comes along, program expands, people have the resources they need. Economy recovers, program declines in and of itself. And without that sort of political decision-making, you get to avoid a lot of the um, probably bad design choices that were associated with CERB just because it was created and introduced so very quickly during that period. And that would create that floor that we're always talking about. I guess that's why Milton Friedman would like it because he, he always <laughs> thought that the real issue was that government can't design these things well, and especially under pressure, they don't design them well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> of course, I think Milton Friedman's other support for it was that he would like to eliminate other aspects of the welfare system that right. maybe I wouldn't. You had said to me earlier while we were talking that, you know, we've evolved from that time. And so so clearly there there is support for these kinds of programs and that Canada, in fact, has a series of guaranteed income programs. There are parts of the Canadian population that already has access to a basic income. The Canada Child Benefit is a basic income for families with kids under 18. The OAS, or Old Age Security, and if your income's low enough, the Guaranteed Income Supplement becomes a guaranteed income for people over 65. So the great gap in the system is working age adults, people between 18 and 64. Now, some of that population also has access to basic incomes. Quebec announced a basic income program for people with permanent or, or long-term and severe disabilities a few weeks ago. Now, there'd be people who would argue that that's not really a basic income. It's conditional. You have to qualify for the program. But it has many of the aspects of a basic income program. Manitoba's just introduced a similar kind of a program for people with long-term and severe disabilities. It's rolling out right now. Very similar to AISH in Alberta, Saskatchewan has a similar kind of a program. So this doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't even work for everybody with a disability. But for some people with disabilities, it's a similar kind of a program. And so we do have these programs in place. But what we've done in a sense, this is the low-hanging fruit. We've done the politically easy things. It's easy to say that old people shouldn't be eating cat food. Old people have worked all their lives. They have a right to decent standard of living. It's easy to say that kids shouldn't be punished for decisions their parents make. You know, they should have enough to survive. It gets hard when you start talking about working age adults because there are a whole lot of people who say working age adults, they ought to be working. And a job is the best form of, of uh, social support. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But I think what a basic income does is that it allows people to access the labor market in a reasonable way. If you think about things like the growth of gig work, the growth of temporary jobs as opposed to permanent jobs, I think a basic income allows people to survive in that kind of an economy. 
Now, imagine then moving from there to a world in which, you know, we did have basic income for those 18 to 65 also, right? And what would you predict? What do you think would, would happen within five and 10 years? Yeah, that's a really hard question. And it's a really interesting question. I talked to a lot of people in Dauphin who were there when the Mencom Project ran in the mid-70s. And it's always hard when you t- talk to people about something that happened in their youth, because whether it was the program itself that made the world such a wonderful place, or whether it was the fact that they were 25 and now they're <laughs> a lot older, it's hard to know exactly. But their memories of, of the period are of a time when people just weren't scrambling so hard just to meet their basic needs. You know, somebody said to me, you know, everybody had enough money for a beer after work. Everybody had enough money to participate in society. Nobody was ashamed to to go to church events, for example, because you had clothes to wear. You know, these were the little things that people were mentioning. And, you know, I think that kind of ability to participate fully in society is a really, really important and interesting thing. You know, especially now. I think that uh, the notion that we're all in this together is something we heard a lot at the beginning of the pandemic, and it seemed to fall by the wayside. But I think that's something that we really need to cultivate. And I think a basic income is part of that. I'm just recognizing that everybody, you know, you don't have to earn your place in society. You're here. And we have a responsibility to ensure that everybody gets a fair shot at playing. So stepping back to the role of universities and research in all of this. Your work has provided really strong evidence for the benefits of the guaranteed income. What do you think we need to do as universities and what additional research do you think needs to be done in order to help inform public policy as, as we move forward? You know, that's, that's a really, really hard question and it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, these experiments are kind of a lot of fun if you're a social scientist and I've been sort of sitting on the edge of a lot of experiments but they're really expensive to undertake. They take a really long time. And at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself what the results are. People are interested in the cost of a basic income. You can't use an experiment to look at cost. We can cost these using the same methods that we use to cost other kinds of social programs. You don't need that. And if you run a four-year experiment and spend another year doing the analysis, it's five years before you get the results. And at the end of the day, you end up showing that if people have adequate incomes, they're healthier and happier. Probably you could have predicted that, that there's no huge impact on the labor market. Well, we know there's not going to be a huge impact on the labor market. We know that from other research. And critics of basic income are still going to manage to twist the results and to discount the results, claiming that there were errors in your protocol, that your experiment was badly designed, it's not applicable, it's not generalizable. And so you asked me what kind of research we need to do, and I keep thinking about what we really need. And I've done a lot of work on the history and philosophy of economics. This is sort of my great love. I'm probably one of the few people on the planet who's read Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. I'm actually reading it again just now. And one of the things that Adam Smith talks a lot about, everybody knows about Smith and self-interest, but one of the things he talks a lot about in Theory of Moral Sentiments is the idea of sympathy. And sympathy meant something very different in the 18th century than it does today. It meant something much closer to empathy. And I think that one of the things that universities need to be involved in, people talked a lot about sympathy in the 18th century, especially around the French Revolution. There was a lot of focus on 
how you can expand empathy in a society. There was a lot of focus on Rousseau and new theories of education, how you can encourage people to be able to step into the shoes of somebody else and to see the world from their perspective. And if I think about university, and maybe I'm just getting old, but I think about what universities ought to be doing, and I think about all of the issues we're facing in the world. I'm not sure that we need to expand these kinds of big research projects that go on for several years. And I say that with a bit of trepidation because those experiments are a lot of fun and they really do help people for short periods of time. But what we really need to do is to make sure that our students graduate with that ability to put themselves into somebody else's shoes and imagine the world from their perspective. To recognize, even if you're a 21-year-old who thinks they're going to take over the world, they're going to you know, be the CEO of some large corporation and be very wealthy for the rest of their lives, to recognize that we're all vulnerable to things happening in our lives, that the possibility of us needing support from society and certainly the possibility of everybody needing the support of one another as they move ahead is something that's really important. And I think a basic income is a reasonable way to do that. Well, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. I do agree with you. We need more empathy in the world and to see the situation from the perspective of individuals who find themselves in positions in poverty. And I think for us as universities, uh, I agree, it, it is important that our students graduate with that knowledge and bring that in the future. So, you know, hopefully we will see these issues being discussed in politics. We've got elections coming up, hopefully that they'll rise. And we will ask our governments to be more empathetic and to try to reduce poverty in, in a way that's really meaningful. So thank you for this and appreciate the time you've spent with me. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to another episode of What's the Big Idea with University of Manitoba President and Vice Chancellor Michael Benarash. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the rest of the series and share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening and be sure to visit umanitoba.ca to learn more about this leading research university and its global impact.